It's the 8th of January, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Happy New Year to you and yours. It's going to be a great new year, I promise. This week, tales of non-adherence, the not-so-greatness of telemedicine, and how to improvise and adapt. Let's start with a study of belimumab safety. It's called the BASE study. It's a compilation of their uh, safety data. Actually, it's a phase four trial, a large trial, 4,018 SLE patients treated with belimumab in standard way over 48 weeks. And really, they found a fairly good safety profile, no new uh, signals, no new uh, worrisome side effects uh, that developed over time. Specifically, there was no increase in all-cause mortality. There was no increase in special adverse events, uh, and that included things like serious infectious events, only 3.7%. Opportunistic infections was 1.8%. Cancers and you know things like heart attack and whatnot were well below 1%. Cancer was 0.25%. Again, an overall good score on the safety of belimumab. Another drug that you may not know a lot about is bradaliumab. Bradaliumab is the third IL-17 inhibitor, originally developed by Amgen, dropped by Amgen, taken up by another company, taken to the market. It has an FDA approval in psoriasis, and bradaliumab is uh, known as Celique. Um, it's another IL-17 inhibitor. They published the results of their two large phase three trials, the Amvision 1, Amvision 2 trials, Overall, almost 1,000 patients with psoriatic arthritis who were treated with bradaliumab, and their outcomes, the primary endpoint being week 16 ACR20 responses, were really good. Not fabulous, but really good. 80, uh, what was it 46% uh, for those that were on bradaliumab and 21% on placebo. Adverse events were unremarkable, as you would expect here, really low events overall. Again, the one uh, Achilles heel on this drug is that it had uh, an unusual signal for depression that became a box warning uh, for the psoriasis indication. But in this thousand patient trial, there was one case of depression. I think that the, the depression thing is very overstated for bradaliumab. I think it had a lot to do with the way the trials were originally designed by Amgen to enhance the reporting of things like depression. But in, at least in our psoriatic arthritis patients, that does not seem to be a problem. It looks like such data may be used for further indication in the future, although this is not currently indicated for psoriatic arthritis. Had a discussion this week about venous thromboembolic events and are they in included uh, or increased in other diseases. Um, found a study from a few months ago with ankylosing spondylitis. Uh, a large trial, um, so over 7,000 patients, showed that there was a twofold increased risk of VTEs. But interestingly, this was highest in the first year. So PEs, 2.88-fold increased risk, almost threefold. DVT, a 2.2-fold increased risk. Overall, the, the hazard ratio for VTE was 2.1. Again, I think important to note that basically inflammatory disease is associated with an increased risk of venous thromboembolism. Speaking of venous thromboembolism, who else is studying that? And in lupus, none other than Michelle Petrie and colleagues who published uh, this week that hydroxychloroquine levels could be linked to a protective effect or, if not high enough, an increased risk of thrombosis. So in her fairly large lupus cohort, 739 patients, they found 
a f about a 5% incidence of uh, thrombotic events in their lupus patients. They showed that the lower um, thrombotic event risk was seen in those who had uh, effective hydroxychloroquine levels. So Michelle has been studying this. It's not just a marker for um, compliance, it's also a marker for effect, and in this case, an anti-thrombotic effect. So um, when you looked at levels, they, they found that um, those who had lower levels, 720 mean uh, 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 levels of nanograms per ml versus 935, they had a, um, uh, uh, the lower levels were associated with a higher rate. Um, there was overall about a 70% decrease in thrombotic events when the levels were greater than 1,068 nanograms per ml compared to those who had low levels, less than 648 nanograms per one. So is this something we should be doing? I think we should be doing it for the purposes of compliance. I think you should probably target a higher level when, whenever possible. Now the question is, how is this going to translate to ocular risks? That needs to be studied further. So another interesting hydroxychloroquine study that was published this week, uh, and this has been published before, but I think it bears reporting. John Esdale and colleagues uh, in British Columbia published a very large cohort study of over 3,000 incident lupus patients. And when they looked at those lupus patients who were on antimalarials versus those that were not, the population had a mean age of 46 years, had a mean follow-up of 6.4 years, they showed that uh, the, there was an overall death rate of 8%, 7.9% when followed for over six years. Um, and that overall, the patients who were compliant, meaning greater than 90% utilization of their hydroxychloroquine, had a, um, a 71 or an 83% reduced risk of death. That 71 and 83 actually has to do with different definitions of compliance. So I think this is really important because we do know that there's data that says that 40 to 50% of our lupus patients are not taking hydroxychloroquine or are not taking it as you instruct them to. And whether that's because people just tend to be non-compliant or whether that they're, they're worried about the side effects or you didn't educate them well enough, non-compliance in lupus and hydroxychloroquine is a big issue. Now we have this data and other data showing that hydroxychloroquine clearly lowers um, mortality rates. So again, another reason what maybe why we should be uh, monitoring uh, uh, plasma hydroxychloroquine levels. So um, ULAR uh, actually has uh, uh, a guideline on um, patient adherence to medicine, um, and basically that that you know they go through the points of consideration and whatnot. I think it uh, if you're concerned about this as I am, you should probably review those because the bottom line is it boils uh, down to how much time we spend with the patients of talking about the medicines, their importance, their side effects, why you think it's important, why it's important to not be non-compliant. A lot of it has to do with the relationship between you and your patient. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the amount of time you spend educating the patient. Again, non-adherence may be the single greatest risk factor we have for suboptimal outcomes in all our diseases, not just in lupus. You know, we're all doing telemedicine now. Um, the numbers are pretty staggering. Uh, I think that it's a, there's a lot of recent reports on telemedicine that bear um, uh, discussion. There's a report from the uh, CDC and MMWR, which is a, uh, the results of a survey done in July. And this comes from the uh, Health Resource Service Administration. They have an ongoing weekly survey of over 1,000 medical centers really to look at 
the impact of COVID on medical practice and things that are going on that are COVID related. This particular study did look at utilization of uh, telemedicine. Uh, and the bottom line is that, that it, uh, urban centers uh, were more likely to provide virtual visits than rural. Um, and the lowest amount of utilization of telehealth was in the South compared to other regions within the country. So overall, about 51% uh, of the centers that were surveyed uh, noted that they were doing less than 30% uh, telehealth visits, that about 45% were doing more than 30% telehealth visits, uh, and that 55% provided uh, of urban centers said that they were providing telehealth compared to 30% uh, in rural centers providing telehealth. Again, the South and rural. So is this a bandwidth issue, a, an internet access issue, an educational issue, a technology issue? Yes, all of the above. The bottom line is if you want to be good at telehealth, and you should be because you're a zoomatologist, you need to get good at these um, deficits that we have. Another interesting study came, comes out of, I think, New Zealand. This is a survey of uh, 1,010 patients that said that telehealth worked best when you, when it was, number one, was a routine. It was routine in your practice and routine for you and the patient. When you were familiar with the patient and the patient's health issues um, and that you had a pre-existing uh, relationship with that patient. Uh, the, the, the surveys with the patient said it was probably less suitable when, um, number one, um, the patients were brand new and needed to be seen. Um, number two, when an examination was required or pivotal to the evaluation. Uh, this makes a lot of sense, but bottom line is telehealth should not be used as a first visit unless your sole reason is to say, figure out whether I'm going to see this patient or not. I believe first visit examinations uh, require good examinations and should be face-to-face. And then subsequent visits can be an intermix of face-to-face -face and, and telehealth. Um, I think telehealth does work better when you have a relationship because you understand the patient. You understand that their problem is a hip problem, and you have to figure out how you're going to assess that via video. By the way, telephone medicine is not telehealth. Tele telephone medicine is dangerous and should be discouraged. There's some uh, interesting COVID reports that have appeared in the literature. I'll just give you two for this week. New England Journal actually has a report of COVID pneumonia that was studied um, and whether or not uh, tocilizumab was effective in improving outcomes. So these are patients who were not bad, severe patients, but were nonetheless hospitalized with COVID pneumonia. Um, it, while uh, the use of tocilizumab did not improve survival, it did improve um, the need for future mechanical ventilation and death um, significantly. It was only, I think, 12% versus 20%. So, again, this is 389 patients um, who received two doses of IV Actemra, uh, and they received their background care, um, standard of care, versus those who received placebo and standard of care, suggesting, again, Actemra was good at lowering the rates of mechanical ventilation and death, but not overall survival. Again, a confusing uh, statistic, but many of the studies with IL-6 have been, it's great, but when, it looks at the, when you look at the outcomes, I find that kind of interesting. Another interesting study comes from northern Italy. Over 2,000 patients in the arthritis clinics there 
were were followed and um, they, they basically compared COVID in their population to COVID in the general population. The general population rate in that region for COVID-19 infection was about 1 to 1.4 percent. When they looked at their arthritis patients, a low percentage of them developing COVID, uh, not necessarily higher, they showed that uh, for drug use, it was steroids that were independently associated with an increased risk of getting COVID. Uh, and it depending on a number of different parameters, the risk was either a 23% increase risk of an, uh, an adjusted odds ratio of 1.23 or a threefold or 300% um, percent increase risk if patients were taking steroids or high-dose steroids. Yet, the patients um, who were taking um, either targeted synthetics, JAK inhibitors, or biologic DMARTs actually had a reduced risk of developing COVID. We've been saying this all along. Regular DMARTs in that study, again, like sulfazalazine, methotrexate, et cetera, did not, have any, did not change the risk one way or the other. But the multiple studies have actually shown this, that the use of aggressive therapies, biologic and targeted synthetics, are associated with lower rates and lower rates of hospitalization. And that steroids are associated with higher rates and higher rates of hospitalization. And there's really no effect. The bottom line is your patients who are taking more aggressive therapy are likely to be the ones who are better controlled. And maybe it's inflammation and not the drugs that are driving the risk here. Um, uh, clearly, we do know steroids are probably driving the risk. But then again, steroids are probably a surrogate marker for more aggressive disease. So that's, a, I think, important studies and very consistent with what we're seeing. So I did two blogs this week that I, I want to talk about. One was called 2021, Whatever It Takes. That's a ripoff of Michael Keaton in Mr. Mom, where um, uh, Martin Mull shows up at the doorstep, and uh, Keaton is the is the Mr. Mom, and he's got a bunch of work tools. He's trying to look tough working at home in front of his wife's boss. And uh, Martin Mull says, are you going to use 220? And Michael Keaton's confused, and he says, uh, 220, 221, whatever it takes, because he doesn't really know what he's doing. I think in this instance, 2021 is much like that for us, meaning 2021, whatever it takes. Um, the bottom line is this, that if you're waiting for 2021, 2020 to end and COVID-19 to just be over and done with, dude, you're a mess. You're drifting. You're going nowhere. You're setting yourself up for a long, hard, cold winter, bad spring, bad summer. Maybe you get out of it in the fall. I don't know. But you got to move on. You got to capitalize on the disaster that was 2020 and to make your 2021 something that you're going to design. You need to embrace the suckiness of 2020 and find a new and better way. Uh, whether that new and better way, that new future way is going to be how you drop your kids off or how you play poker or what journal club or how you learn or what virtual meetings you may go to or live meetings you go to, you need to find a better way. This is your big opportunity. Let all the others who are waiting for 2020 to basically continue and for COVID to maybe get over, let them be in your rearview mirror. Cultivate a brand new way. Success is not really born of achievement here. Success is born of catastrophe. That's a quote taken from Redstone, the Viacom CBS uh, CEO who passed away this last year. Um, use the marine line, improvise, adapt, and overcome. That's going to be your 2021. So what's happening in 20 and 2021? You all became zoomatologists. I did a blog on that giving you my riff on zoomatology and who I think, again, if you're waiting for 2020 to end and for to go back to the old way, you're not a zoomatologist. In fact, you hate zoom. 
Um, but if you're not that guy or that gal and you're moving on and developing new ways, you're probably a zoomatologist. Uh, again, you need to adapt these newer ways of doing the job. A zoomatologist is multimodal. He's synchronous and asynchronous. She, re, you know, you, things that you can do with Zoom that most people don't do, uh, and that is record the meeting, transcribe it, then you can search it, then you can use AI and machine learning to trigger certain things when a certain thing is said or done in a Zoom meeting. You can go big and do gigantic webinars, which I'm not really a big fan of, but Zoom is really great the smaller you get. Small ball here really pays off because you can do that and have be very social, very one-on-one, -on -one, very creative. You're in a big meeting. There's, most people are underutilizing the um, breakout room um, uh, aspect that you can use in Zoom where you can get a lot done in small groups. You can be more social. You can share more. There are rules to Zoom that everyone needs to adhere to. That includes, you know, Turn your cam on, comb your hair, you know, throw some water on your face. You don't need to hide behind your cam being off. Your mic is muted, but turn it on. When you want to speak, raise your thumb, raise your finger. People will acknowledge you. Jump in. Again, when you make Zoom social and shareable, it's going to be great. So the, spend a little money. Get a really good cam. Get a light. You know, I, I have this ring light that allows you to see me. Oh, my God. Actually, it looks like a halo. I, I like, I'm going to use it like that in the future. The, you know, get good lighting. Get a good microphone. I'm using this microphone. It's $35 from uh, Amazon. It's as good as my Yeti $200 microphone. Um, improve your quality and get yourself a Zoom room. And then it's going to be lights, camera, action, mic, and Zoom. And you're in the game, and you're leading the way. People need you to lead the way. That's it for this week. Next week, we're going to talk about the year in review, 2020, the year that was one to remember, and not just for COVID, by the way. I want to remind everyone, if you have a case or a question, click on Backtalk. It's on the email. It's on the website. You can record on your computer, record your question or your case, and we'll discuss it here on the podcast. And lastly, I want to remind you, registration is open for Room Now Live. It's a meeting occurring 2021 of March. Get that? 20, 21 on the 20th and 21st, a Saturday and Sunday meeting, a one-day-and-a-half meeting uh, in March uh, in Fort Worth. It's a hybrid meeting. In fact, we are the original best hybrid meeting. We do live meetings and we stream it. So sign up now. There's a discounted registration. You can get on there. We look forward to seeing you at Room Now Live 2021. Remember, whatever it takes. See you next week.